Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast. Today we have Eric Baum, who's one of the partners at Solidia Capital. Eric, welcome. Thank you, Michael. It's been it's great to be here and looking forward to our discussion. And I said partner at Solidia Capital. Is there a different title, better title? I kind of go by co-founder and, and managing director. So we, we kind of kind of have a more sort of flat organization. So we don't use you know part time, but that's fine. Got it. Well, I know your organization really well for a number of reasons. We've collaborated on a couple of projects, but for those who might not be familiar with Solidio, how about you give a quick overview of uh, what you and your team do? Sure, that would be great. So Solidia is a venture advisory uh, company. And the reason I say venture advisory versus venture capital, we kind of straddle both sides of that. So while we do make uh, small investments into portfolio companies, really where we see a lot of our value is actually working with early stage and emerging companies and helping them to really accelerate growth and momentum. And so we would be helping companies on some of the key pitfalls or challenges that we've seen over time that startups hit. So that could be things like trajectory management, uh, which from our side is all those activities and determining um, as a startup, how much capital do I need? You know, what does my next three or four years look like from a funding perspective? What are the different value accretive milestones I need to achieve to, to get to where a, a company wants to go? You know, for example, in, in that area, sometimes we see that people or, or some of our founders are really just focused on I'm raising, you know, a million dollars and that's going to get us, you know, eight months runway versus we kind of take a step back and we say, look, every, every fundraise is a journey and each journey should have a discrete beginning and an end. And Really, it's about value creative milestones that at the end of the journey, it's a discrete ending point that positions you in a natural way to rate the next round. Trajectory management is a process where we look at that. Other things that we would work on are things like customer acquisition strategy, go to market strategy, uh, governance setup and structure. You know, as our companies are growing, organizational design and development. So who's your next employee and employee after that? How do you maintain culture? So, we kind of work with our portfolio companies from both perspectives, and we, we do that from mainly an equity for services nature that I mentioned. The reason we do that, because we do have the ability uh, to put some capital in, like I mentioned, and we do have funding sources around us, is it's important to us to sort of align interests. So Solidia Capital is a is a affiliate company of a group of different businesses uh, myself and other partners have that can pull on each other. And so we're a cost center. And so we know when we when we take on a company that we're going to put and deliver a ton of resources and time. And so the only way we make an ROI on our effort is for that company to be successful. And our staff would be your, your classic private equity and, and venture trained. But we can also call on the resources of a variety of other companies we have, like a strategy operational consulting firm, Pacific Pharma, companies and other startups to, to bring those information to bear. So I'm not sure if that gives a kind of background that you were looking for, Mike. I know it's a little bit complex, but I kind of pause there and see if there's any questions there. No, I, I mean, it, it's hard since I, I know you guys so well. So I think, that's a, I think that's a great background. Who's a good fit? So when you guys evaluate a company that's going to be a good fit for Solidia, that could mean a number of things, right? That could be the, the type of company, the stage of the company, 
what they're doing, as well as all the other things that I, I think probably a more classic investor is looking for. I'm sure you're also looking for those too, because you want to make good bets with your time. So talk to me a little bit about that. What criteria do you guys look for when you're looking at a, a team or a product? Great, great question. And we've certainly evolved our thinking over time, um, you know, as we kind of uh, get the lessons learned and we kind of tweak over where we see the attributes or characteristics are more likely to lead to success or kind of bend that probability curve. So some of the areas that we look for first is we like to see a product that's uh, in the marketplace today. So what that means is that product may you know, have one customer, it may have $1 of revenue, but what it allows us to do is to know and be able to do some analysis and, and market research on that product, but also to have the ability to try and test it out or to know that when we are working with the company, it can actually affect change and, and look at things. But we, we like to see that the product is validated in the marketplace. We like to see that it's earned some revenue, which means that there's someone out there that sort of value there, even if it's small. Um, and so that, again, we can get some of the data. From a team perspective, we do look for experienced teams. So, you know, we do like serial entrepreneurs because, you know, there's a lot of lessons learned in, in failures and then also have, uh, having gone through the process. Um, but that's not, that's not a requirement, but we do look for, you know, the, the team to start to been built out. So a lot of the key gaps are filled and that we know that some of the key things that we worry about startups are there. So for example, you need, you know, you need the founder and the visionary and, and the person that has a kind of a strategic roadmap, but you're also, for us, we feel it's extremely important. We're looking for companies that have the internal sales capability again. So, you know, when they do have the product, they have a starting point in understanding how to sell that. It doesn't necessarily have to be a visionary sales leader, but someone that has experience within sales or the ability to be able to move product. The third piece is you know, we look for is kind of on the funding side, and this has evolved over time. What we've kind of noticed is that when we work with companies where, you know, as I mentioned earlier, while we're not a funding source, you know, Solidity's value is really the, the strategy and expertise we're bringing in to really accelerate and grow companies. We have, for many of our portfolio companies, led to charge in raising a lot of capital because we do have angel investors, super angels, uh, VC relationships around us that we navigate our companies through as they grow and, and move stages. But what we found is that when we were reliant on to raise capital, the company struggled a lot more. And so we kind of have an internal metric where we look for our companies that have demonstrated that they can independently raise some amount of capital. It doesn't have to be large. Usually we're looking to see that they've, you know, raised at least a hundred thousand dollars you know and what that kind of shows is that the, the the founding team has a network they have the ability to articulate the story they can get other folks around them you know generally for us now it's a caution flag if we see a good company and a good product and you know they haven't been able to kind of bring capital around them and then we also look for you know companies and products that are in spaces that are, are scalable that you can kind of move through the sales process. So we always think of it as first, you're kind of selling a product one-to-one. -one. So I kind of meet with someone, I try to sell it, and there's certain techniques and tactics that make sense for that. And ultimately, you're trying to shift that to, I now, what I call many-to-one, where I might be able to do a sales messaging or pitch with, with many potential customers. So that might be speaking at a conference or other tactics. And eventually, you want to get to many-to-many -to -many where folks are sort of out there 
advocates and channel partners for you. So we look for we look for companies that we can see that evolution, that there are areas to be scale channels and channel partners and ability that once we get the momentum, we can scale from that. In a lot of ways, that's more important to us than necessarily the, the size of the opportunity. We're not, you know, we're different from venture capitals that we're not necessarily looking for the billion dollar, two billion dollar exit. That'd be great. But we're, you know, we, we think there's a lot of great businesses that can build businesses around 50 million, $100 million businesses. We put more emphasis on the ability to create traction and grow and scale than kind of that top side. So those are kind of the aspects that, that we look at. Love it. Are you open to give a couple of examples of companies that are in the portfolio today? One exciting company that I, I love talking about is, is Tenant Tracker. So Tenant Tracker is a company that has uh, developed a, a suite of tools that really help in the kind of the supports tenant leasing and placement. So if you think about, you know, I like to always use like a retail setting. If you think about a mall and as you have, you know, storefronts moving out, their stores moving out and new tenants going in, there's a series of steps and complex activities that, that happen in order to facilitate that. You've got to, you the tenant moves out, there's potential improvements that need to be made in space, some of that's going to be tenant paid, some of that's going to be landlord credit, there's scope of work that needs to be done, there's a move-in. And what you typically see happens is that that life cycle becomes fairly long because there's not a lot of great tools that manage that process, to manage different stakeholders and constructions and contractors and, and tenant and the lease. And so what Tenant Tracker has done is be able to kind of manage that process from the very beginning, automate it create a great repository that connects all the stakeholders. And what that ends up doing is, is shortening the, the length of time that a vacancy exists or so getting tenants in there quicker, faster, which ultimately benefits both parties from a, you know, a, a landlord. They're getting uh, rent in there quicker and, and filling that vacancy from a tenant. They're out there uh, putting their wares and getting their stores up quicker and, and generating revenue. So they've been doing some great stuff in terms of really starting to you know, build and, and, and scale. And I think, you know, the real estate technology space is, is really exciting. Uh, another one of our companies is in the golf technology uh, space. It's called Club Caddy, and they're out of Michigan. And what they're doing is really in the golf industry. You really have, if you look at golf courses, you have 15,000 golf courses in the U.S. 50% of them are on a technology called Golf Nail. Essentially, what Golf Nail does is, it aggregates all these tee times at different courses. It discounts them and brings you know eyeballs into them and provides a, a very low-tech sort of course management software. What was interesting at the time is that they charge a instead of charging fees because a lot of courses cash flow is, is an issue, especially during slower months. They took tee times, so they would give Golf Nail a few tee times in which they could sell. As I mentioned, Golf Nail actually ended up aggregating them the discount. It created a lot of dis- uh, dissonance in the industry. Horses were very frustrated. They didn't really understand the vision that Golf Nail was going to do. It created a lot of couponing and discounted play, and it ended up costing the courses a lot more money because it was lost tee times that some courses be as big as you know twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year. What Club Caddy has done is it was started by uh, a course owner. And, you know, while I mentioned 50% are on Golf Nail, 50% of courses have no technology in place. They weren't of interest in Golf Nail and they can afford it. So they're doing everything manually, pen and paper. So what Club Caddy has together is really kind of 
uh, best in breed course management uh, technology. It really ha- it handles tea times. It handles the ability uh, from equipment, from food service, bringing food out to the office, handling the HR and, and payroll. And they provide it for free because the business model is they make revenue or we make revenue off of the credit card processing. And so what we say to courses is we're going to, you know, we're going to be transparent to you. We roll you onto our credit card processor. You're going to pay the same or below. And then that's how we're going to make our revenue. So it becomes, you know, a, a great revenue source for us. And each course is worth 10 or 20,000 for us. It's great for the courses. They get top end technology without really having to do an out of pocket payment and a way to kind of move off of that. Uh, giving up key times. And so that one has been growing extremely, extremely uh, fast. Another company we have kind of switching gears away from technology or SaaS based is the company called Allergy. They do something interesting that's, you know, dear to me. If you think about a lot of people, you know, around the country, there's food allergies is is very uh, common. And what's also common is a lot of people don't carry EpiPens. It should be. My wife has a serious allergy. She rarely carries her EpiPen. You know, it creates a lot of stress for the care circle uh, around them should, you know, should anything happen. It causes stress on the, the pharma companies that want to make sure, you know, EpiPens are available. It creates stress on the insurance companies because when you go to the ER and deal with an allergic attack, it's much more expensive than if you dealt with it at the time. And so what this company does is they came and they said, okay, well, the biggest issue with people uh, carrying their EpiPen is it's inconvenient easy to forget what's something everyone has. Everyone carries their cell phone. Um, so allergies kind of way of approaching this problem is, again, identifying that, you know, the one thing that most folks, you know, carry with them and have on them is their, is their, is their cell phone. Um, so they thought, you know, what a great idea if we could uh, engineer, and it, it, it took a lot of time, and a lot of iterations of engineering, if we can put an auto injector into uh, a cell phone case so that all around you and it would mimic the size of your case you know it's very uh it's very subtle but that uh should you have any kind of issue it automatically the auto injector comes out you've got an epi pen but then you also have the software integration so it communicates with your care uh circle can provide more information and then later on you know phase two it can do some interesting things uh as well when you think about uh, a lot of elderly people one of the one of the challenges is there's a lot of pills to take, but it's really hard for them to remember when to take them. Obviously, compliance in, in a lot of cases is an issue there. And so, again, you could use a, a, a mobile case or a cell phone case where you could integrate with software and say, okay, it's 2 p.m. These are the two I need. And you could load all your pills into the into the case, and then it would open up and give you the pills, you know, as you needed them and, and remind you. Uh, so I think they're doing some really interesting things to solve the issue of compliance with, you know, life-saving technology by tying it to convenience and, and mobile cell phone around us, while also integrating with the software and, and being able to uh, communicate uh, information uh, to others. And, you know, right now it's an exciting time for them. They're in the process of of getting ready for FDA submission for for, for regulatory, They've got some great partners. They've worked on several rounds of of, of product, and you know, really getting some great press and, and and things out there. And I think they've got a chance to really transform uh, that that market. Dude, that's nuts. I know you've mentioned to them, them to me in the past, but I had no idea that that's what they did. That sounds awesome. 
truly. Like that's that's really cool. I guess you kind of went into competition a little bit with Club Caddy and a little bit of the market opportunity that Golf Now left in the market. I I would just be interested, and you don't you don't have to pick a specific company. This can be a little bit broader in terms of how you guys look at the market in general, because there's really there's two aspects to it when I think of when I think of your business, right? So one aspect is how do you guys take into account competition when you're looking at whether or not this is a good investment for you, right? Like, is this worth spending my time on? Or we, you know, is this like, we're just competing with an established market and and maybe it doesn't make sense. So I'd love for you to, to talk a little bit about how you guys look at competition from that deal selection perspective. But then I, I know from firsthand experience that then once you're in a deal, you're also looking at competition from a go-to-market strategy perspective and how does this business scale and who are the who are the different segments of customers and which all, you know, competition clearly comes into play in that analysis as well. So so maybe start with from a Solidia perspective, how do you guys think about it uh, on the first order? And then when you're in working with a founding team, what are you looking at to help give them advice for how they start to dissect that? competition? Sure. Great question. So the first thing we do, and if I take it a little bit broader, to give you a sense of how we look at it, is that we believe that uh, most companies or startup companies, uh, they fit into different buckets that give a sense of sort of where where they stand from a, competi- a competitive set, but where also that industry set or that market fit. So for example, you know, I, I use the term a pioneer. And so that would be like a first group. A pioneer to me would be a company that's solving a problem that people don't yet know they have. And that's why, in my mind, they're kind of pioneers. They're out there, you know, and, and in many ways, Apple, you know, and a lot of things that Steve Jobs did early was a pioneer. He was creating products that people didn't really know they had the use for yet. And the reason it's important is that in each category that you're in, there's different techniques and tactics of how you respond to competition and how you really build awareness to the company. So for example, if you're a pioneer and so you're solving a problem that folks don't know they have yet, then you know, kind of doing SEO and, and kind of you know blasting you know, certain additional techniques aren't really gonna work. Instead, you know, what a lot of pioneers company, companies are doing is creating education, right? They're, you're you're trying to create thought leadership and awareness more important about being on blogs and talking about trends and getting people to it. So in the pioneer scenario, you really don't have a competitive uh, threat yet. You really have, you're really uh, focusing on creating the market around it. And then, you know, as competitors come in, now you're really relying on your first mover advantage, right? You've helped educate and be a thought leader. People have connected to you. And now as, you know, you kind of create that need, a lot of your techniques are going to be there. Another, you know, another category would be sort of the product already exists. So there's an existing need you're solving, but you've added an incremental improvement, right? So it's, it's uh, kind of improved. And so again, from that standpoint, there's a little bit of a different technique, right? You're really stressing what competitive advantage that you just brought to the table. So it might be a new product feature. It might be a cost or some other element that's kind of changed the risk reward that's out there. And then if I simplified, like kind of a, a last big bucket is a me too product, right? And I think of me too, it's really kind of, you know, as a startup, I'm putting out a very similar product to someone else. A lot of people look at me too products and say, well, those aren't really exciting. You know, we're not interested in that. Well, not really so. Each of those models can work. It's just you have to write 
you have to have the right techniques and tactics. So if you're going to be a me too company, that's okay, but you probably want to be focused in a new geography or, you know, be in an area that someone isn't. So for example, people that were doing online delivery of meals, you know, it, it started out in big urban centers and there were small second cities that no one was there. That might be a me too opportunity or you're providing it to a new niche or uh, a new demographic of, of folks that, that weren't in that service. So the reason kind of rolling this together is when we look at companies, one of the first things we say is, OK, where does this company sit? And, you know, if depending on where it sit, sits, then we have a, a kind of a viewpoint of, of, of competition. So if it's a pioneer, I'm not as worried about where the competition exists today. But what I am worried about is a pioneer is going to have a much longer uh, cycle and length of time it's going to need to get to revenue in other areas. So, you know, what's its funding situation? How strong is the team? Are they prepared for it's going to take longer? Is their marketing and sales skill set lined to create awareness and education? And if it's a, if it's a me too, I'm going to be looking at this company and saying, okay, I want to understand What's its go to its go to market strategy is going to be really important to me because it's not differentiating on product or something novel. What is it about it? And if they can convince me to go to market, like, look, this is out there, but we're taking it to this new geography and this new demographic, and this is what this is where we're going to be uniquely qualified to do that. And the product itself is de-risk because we know it's interesting in some fashion. You know that becomes interesting. If it's something where it's coming with a new competitive advantage, then I'm trying to understand how sustainable that advantage is. So is it something, so for example, now I'm going to do diligence to companies and say, okay, what's going to stop existing competitors from being cheaper? You know, is your, if you're competing on cost, is it something proprietary? Is it IP protection? Is it a secret process? Um, or is it something that's easily replicable? So, you know, from a Solidia perspective, going back to your question, we look and see where it is. And based on that, we see, well, how is this company, uh, how's their technique and tactics aligned with what we think is going to be successful there? And a lot of times we'll see disconnects because a lot of companies uh, aren't necessarily taking the time to say, hey, I know I'm a startup, but let me think about what bucket I fall in and how that really does affect some of my strategy and tactics. So sometimes we see companies that are in pioneer space and they're talking to us about, and we're going to do SEO and we're going to be, you know, we're going to be meeting with 10 companies and hiring a sales force. And we can tell right away that's really not going to be successful because people are not yet ready to purchase. You haven't created that awareness. We're talking about a, you know, a, we're talking to a me too company, but there's nothing unique and they're going to market strategy. That's interesting. I'm totally just curious. There's no right or wrong answer here. Which of those do you see more between pioneers and me too's? So I think pioneers are going to be kind of a small minority, right? Because a pioneer really is a hard, it, it's a, it's a hard one. It's that you have enough vision to know that you have a strong compulsion that this product and messaging resonates and you've been able to get other people around you, but that you're way ahead of the market that you really have to educate. So I think there's very few companies that pull off that say, I've got a product that's solving a need that someone doesn't yet know that can get enough momentum to, you know, even get to that, that beginning point. And most of the time, you know, we don't take, we don't see too many pioneers are truly pioneered, right? What happens is either their idea or product is probably not as realistic or sustainable or as mass consumed 
as they think it is, or there's just no real path to create sort of that education. I think Me Too's are probably uh, a, a much more popular, you know, or, or we see them a lot more, and we see a lot more on the competitive advantage side, what I'm calling sort of, you know, there's existing, you've improved it. And really, that's probably the biggest bucket. And what we're digging in there is to understand how sustainable is that competitive advantage? You know, again, is that backed by IP? Is it backed by, you know, special process? Or is this, you know, something that's easily? Awesome. Thank you. Sorry for that digression. No, of course. And so when we start to work with companies, so we've kind of then made the assessment. So when we work with companies, it kind of follows that tie. One of the first things we're seeing down is kind of talking through like, hey, you know, we kind of have this spectrum of stages of companies. And you know, here's where we kind of feel like you fit. And, you know, what's your thoughts and kind of have that dialogue. And we kind of talk about that, that, you know, recognizing where we are is really important because it informs us of the different tactics and techniques. And we kind of go through that. So, you know, as we're sitting with companies working with them, if we say, okay, we, we, we both agree we're a pioneer, that's going to help us really have a good shared view to competition. Okay. In a pioneer setting, competition is a friend, right? Because ultimately in a new industry that's just burgeoning, the more players that are out there talking about the value of the problem you're solving, the more it benefits everyone in that, right? It's a, it's a new white space. You know, if you can create a market, there's going to be big enough for the first couple of players in it. So you kind of look at competition to say, great, you're almost not joining forces, but you're almost trying trying to see how you complement each other or how you create that thought leadership. And, you know, you're looking at tactics of, okay, within that, you know, I want to position myself if I'm a pioneer to be at least viewed as a thought leader, right? So as I'm getting that dialogue, I want to establish credibility. So as this market starts to develop, there is sort of that first mover uh, advantage. But again, recognizing that if you're in the right market, all the competition creating a market is really kind of lifting them up for everybody. How, uh, and this is not a well-formed thought, obviously, uh, how critical is the, I guess, the founder or the founding team when you look at that space versus new market, me too, specifically what I'm going for there is if you basically, if you're trying to create the market, if you, I would assume you have to be way more of an influencer in the given space that you're going into, rather than if you're in a me too, it's much more about niching down. Nobody needs to know who you are, right? Like I'm, all things being equal, it'd be great if you were an influencer too, but, but it, it's not like you need to be on stage presenting, talking about, you know, making this market happen if you're in a me too. Whereas it, from a pioneer perspective, that seems to me like that would be a big question in your mind of like who on the founding team is going to be that person who's going to be the front person who's driving a lot of that energy is that is that real did i just make that up no that's exactly right and that's a great point and that really you know helps reinforce remind me of, of you know a couple points that i probably skipped over and you know i haven't given my spiel on this in, in a while so you're absolutely right when you think about so what's great about the framework of trying to understand where you know a startup, what kind of stage they are, and kind of say not all startups are in the same stage and the like, is it does inform all these pieces like we were talking about marketing, funding, but what you're also hitting is, is is team. And you're absolutely right. So when you're a pioneer, what's really important is that team is folks that are thought leaders. They're folks that you know are kind of inspirational. Like they sit in the room in a conference and talk about 
where they see the future and, and, and they can bring people along. You think about it, you know, Steve Jobs or, you know, Elon Musk. And again, I'm, you know, I'm going straight to the, you know, the, the 1% of them, but that's what they're able to do. They have that vision and they're bringing people along um, because they have to get people to see two or three steps uh, above. And so they've got to be articulate. They're kind of like the storytellers, right? It's not as important, uh, you know, for the executioners and the operation of folks. It's the folks out there uh, getting people to believe. So absolutely. Versus when you look at a Me Too, one of the things I forgot to mention is, so when we look at a Me Too, we say, as I said earlier, Me Too is not bad. It's just these are the things that you need to be successful. So one of those things is, you know, I was kind of mentioning, you know, are you taking a, a pro, an existing product to a completely different marketplace, right? And, you know, we, we've seen that all the time where business models, you know, get altered. Uh, are you taking it to a different market segment. But the other area is, if you're a Me Too, are you much, you know, is your team much stronger executors, right? So a lot of times it's it's not about, you think about an industry and there's a couple of competitors, it's not always about who's been there first and what's not, it's which team, you know, executes, you know, stronger and better. So again, great point from the team perspective, if it's a Me Too, now I'm looking about, you know, a team about, you know, it's great, you know, we want them to have vision, but does this team have amazing execution? Do I look at this team and say, these guys are, are going to execute so much faster, smarter than, than the next side? So you're absolutely right. Where you are would, would impact sort of that makeup of, of, of the team. Awesome. Thanks. Sorry. Continue. Didn't mean to derail. Yeah. So, sure. So like once we're working individually with the companies, again, going through, if we're looking for, a, if we're working with a portfolio company that we think, okay, you've kind of made, you know, a novel improvement or you've taken, you're, you're solving a problem in an incrementally better way. We're going to focus a lot on the competitions in terms of, okay, really understanding who's out there today, what the, you know, what our differentiators are but also how sustainable they are. We're going to look at areas. And so we're going to do a lot more profiling on customers today and where we think uh, different customer profiles are going to go in the future. So what do they want today and what might they want in the future? What does the competitive landscape look today? And you know what is going to be that, that sort of product mix in the future? And, and we kind of look at the competition and say, okay, which are the ones that are uniquely uh, positioned to kind of evolve in the right way? Where do we think we need to be? Where are some of the, the, the differentiation? Um, but what we also focus on is our go-to-market strategy a lot of times for companies is early on, it's easy to be distractible. You've got this company and you're like, look, I think my product is great and, and everyone should use it. And it could be that you do have 10 or 12 segments. We're very focused on niche segments within niche segments that you start and you try to find in these areas your stickiest customers and you say okay here's my competitive matrix here's what people are doing now we look internally and say where are we the strongest where's our differentiation and what are the smallest subset of of customers that would appreciate that and how do we go in and target that deep so for example some of our competitors might have a a foot in a bunch of segments but we might want to go to deep in one or two so we're really focused on where can we, where do we particularly show the most value and hit those customers first and use those folks to kind of grow and expand from there? If we were looking at a sort of a me too company, again, on the customer side, we'd be, we'd be kind of aligning from the competitive side is to say, okay, where do we think we're the strongest? So for example, you know, one of our companies 
they're not me too, but they've got uh, similar competitors. And what we've learned or what we saw is our strength really is in the RFP process. We felt like we really understood what company, you know, we understand from a consultative side, how companies view RFP processes, what's important, especially in enterprise scenarios, you know, implementation, what some of the common challenges are, what some of the mistakes that companies make in RFP processes. So for us, we knew, okay, what we want to do is every time we're in the RFP process, we're going head to head in, in this kind of activity, we're going to have an 80% win rate. So we kind of went after a competitive strategy to say, okay, here's where we want to compete. And so we focused more of our energy in looking for companies that were already you know, planning the RFP, getting the right panel partners that brought us in versus necessarily looking for that one-on-one sale where there, there's no competition. We felt like in that scenario, we stood so much strong in our competition from a flexibility, from a messaging. So from a me too, we kind of think about that. In the sales cycle, where are we strongest and how do we kind of leverage that about our competition? But across all cases, we're looking at the competitive matrix and we're really trying to understand where are competitors strong and, and where do they have gaps? And what happens a lot with companies is that you're never, you know, early on, you don't always say no to business and companies take businesses that they shouldn't. And so we love to find out where our competitors are playing, where they shouldn't be playing and take advantages of those segments first, where we're strong and using that kind of story, the launch pad uh, in other segments. So I know that was kind of a long winded answer on that. So I'll, I'll pause and see if I've kind of <laughs> covered some of that or missed anything it's phenomenal are you kidding me i can listen to you talk about this all day this episode is brought to you by full stack peo most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need not because they love tracking payroll filling out compliance forms and explaining employee benefits packages and yet all that stuff still has to be done that's why there's full stack peo Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com. Oh man, that last thing you just said, which is when you find a competitor who's maybe in a space that they shouldn't be, you look to to maybe exploit that. How do you discover that? Like like where do you where do you go to find that? Great, great question. Um, no, you know, no silver bullet. And that's one thing I'll say for the audience. One thing I've always seen in just, you know, or, or kind of my opinion or perspective in, in, in uh, emerging ventures is there's never a, a silver bullet. Usually change and success is a series of, of, of small things that are coordinated. There's not like one uh, magic piece. And, and same here. I think conferences uh, and, and educational and, and trade associations are great ways to kind of get the feet on the street and kind of hear the water cooler talk. So, you know, you kind of put yourself in a position to, oh, what are you hearing? And, you know, you, uh, as you're more industry events, you sort of get to hear what some of the frustrations are. People like to talk a lot more about things that are going wrong <laughs> with something than going right. So in the right environment, I think you, you can get from there. Second is really looking at a lot of sort of the industry reporting. So obviously there's, you know, reporters, you know, generally, but in every industry, there are, you know, travel reporters, there's folks covering real estate. And I feel like uh, if you kind of have your your foot, 
your finger on the pulse and you're reading a lot of that, they do a good job of comparing and contrasting and they themselves are out there going to existing customers, customers they lost. So the industry reporting, which sometimes you know has small followership, but if, if you make sure you're, you're, you're staying current to that, it's talking to, you know, a lot of times when you're getting new customers, you're getting customers that have left competitors and that's a great way to really understand what's behind the change. And so sort of getting from, you know, folks that you might be winning where they see or, 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 or some of the pain points. The other, the other area is, is channel partners and partners. A lot of times, you know, particularly if you're a, a SaaS based technology, you might be integrating uh, with a major player in the space. Like you may need to integrate with SAP or incur expense if you're on the expense management side. And I think as you're having, you know, talking to those same players or talking about them, they're a wealth of knowledge of, where, you know, kind of where they see they're playing or what some of the strengths and weaknesses. So I think really kind of having a pervasive look at the different, you know, stakeholder groups and then also trying to, you know, kind of build backwards your strategy, right? Again, the way we do strategy with our portfolio companies is to say, okay, and I know Mike has sat in a, a, a few of these sessions too, and we say, you know, when we think about go to market, we say, what are the different attributes that are important to us uniquely as a customer? It might be, the length of the sales cycle, the, the revenue potential of the customer, our access to decision makers, virality of that particular customer that, you know, to refer us to others. So each company, we say, what are those important pieces? How, you know, we try to rate them and then we take different segments and demographics that kind of overlap. And then you kind of create more an objective system that says, okay, you have these 10 segments, but based on what the inputs you just put in, these are the initial segments that kind of meet your, your requirements. And so that's where you should focus. And we do the same for our competitors. We kind of look at that and say, okay, you know, from what we can see in their client list or what we can see for the information available, where are they playing? If they're all over the place or we're going backwards and saying, for example, their strategy and their technology, they really are well-suited for Fortune 100 companies because, you know, ABC, but we see they're at startups and mid-sized companies. Well, that's a gap. That doesn't make sense. Or if we're seeing a player that you know hasn't involved their technology from a security perspective, and they're calling on Fortune 50 100s, we know that that's a challenge. We can kind of play off of that. So, kind of all those areas, I'd say, industry resources, cold calling potential customers, and one thing I would say, you always have to do it in an ethical way, but don't be afraid to call companies and ask them a lot of questions without necessarily like you know, hey, we're looking at, you know, different types of technologies. We'd love to get a couple of minutes for you to see what your experience is with them. And sometimes you can get, you know, good information from uh, from folks here from making a, a few cold calls. Dude, that's awesome. What are some of the other things when you're sitting down with, uh, and this doesn't necessarily have to be specific to, to competition, when you're sitting down with a portfolio company, or even maybe you're evaluating a portfolio company candidate, and so you're obviously learning their business and meeting with the team. What are some of the other things you're looking at to to maybe assess health of that company and and how good of an investment it's going to be? There's a lot of different areas that can give you different tells, and you know sometimes you know what ends up happening is as you're having the meeting, you kind of see you know different different tells that you might want to dig a little further in you know one for me and this is a more this is a broader one 
is, and, and, and it, it's one you probably hear a lot. You know, people talk about the team and everyone says the team is the most important, but really one thing everyone has to figure out on their own and for every, you know, venture advisory or venture capital investor is what team means for you. Cause it, it, it means different. You know, what a good team is can be very different for, for different folks. For us, one of the things that we really look for is flexibility, the ability to pivot, you know, someone who has ego enough that they want to build a business, but has control of their ego that they're not afraid to make mistakes and pivot and change. And the reason I'm, I'm mentioning this is that we know almost every company that, that we take on that at some point, you know, what you, what your initial product is, what you think your initial segment is, where you think you're going to have initial success, you know, 90% of the time, it evolves, you know, products evolve, the market need evolves. And, and oftentimes, you know, there's some big you know, examples, Twitter and, and almost every big technology company, where they start and where they ended is, is very different. And what's, what's really exciting about the right team is that, you know, they've got a vision and as you're getting data and as you have a product, you start to see, oh, you know, it's really interesting. We never thought customers were really like this. This is what resonated when we, and we're going to pivot there. And so we know that we're going to have hard conversations with our teams to say, hey, right now you're a B2C, but, you know, in, in thinking about it, we think B2B pivot makes a lot more sense. And, and, and here's why. Or, you know, with our golf company, they originally started at just kind of an app that connected food delivery on the course. And we saw our broader application. And so, you know, for us, it's really important that we know that's going to happen, that businesses evolve. Are these founders, you know, their egos, their vision, can they adapt to that? Are they going to be folks coming back and saying, hey, look, you know, look what data told us? Or are they going to be, nope, I know this is my problem. I'm solving it. It, it, does, it doesn't really matter the feedback. So we do a lot of testing on that. You know, how what's their ability to take feedback, to take advice, to take uh, pivots? How fast do you think you know that? Or how quickly do you think you guys assess that? Is that, I mean, so is it is it more scientific where you're actually structuring tests for that or is it anecdotal where like you know now after an hour in a room with somebody i know whether or not that's going to be an issue great question so it's more anecdotal in the sense that we go through our due diligence process we have questions and, and conversation you know angles that we can take them down the tr- you know it's almost like an interview a subtle interview that you're trying to see how they react and you're giving you're giving examples of stories and kind of saying you know what do you think and you're asking questions to kind of draw that out you know it's not scientific what i will tell you though is that i think you can we can root out with kind of 90% accuracy the folks that we know that are not go that are, are stubborn and narrow-minded and their way is the only way and you can get that out quickly so we can remove those then the you know the rest of them that appear flexible and and, and say the right things there's still a high percentage of those folks that aren't going to be that aren't going to pivot are going to create an issue so you know i certainly say it's not a perfect process but i think you can certainly kind of weed out uh, very quickly, folks that get really stubborn. And some of that is just almost playing devil's advocate. We're always challenging our companies, but sometimes we challenge them a little harder in areas, even, you know, if we're being overly harsh just to see their response. Like, do they get, a, you know, offended? You know, do they kind of shut down or do they say, look, you know, I understand what you're saying. Here's why I have a different viewpoint on that. But, if, you know, if, if we see data or if, if our customers, you know, start to tell us that, yeah, we're here to, to you know, solve our customer problems, not ourselves, you know, not our problems. 
I think it, it's hard. You can root out you know, some of them quickly, the real hard, you know, hard nosed ones, but you know, you still face that because of, until people really face that first really tough adversity, you, you never know how they're gonna they're gonna react. How do you identify? So go the, to the other extreme, which is not the the market will know what it wants when I tell them what it wants, but the the flip side of that, which is not the ego driven person, but the person who will defer every decision to the last person they talk to. So this is the founder that pivots the company or the product every couple of weeks based on, you know, one customer conversation or, you know, one conversation with an industry analyst or something like that. I, I'm sure you've seen them. How, how do you identify that person in your process? Yeah, that, that's a great question, too, and, and, and very fair, uh, the, the, other, the other side of it. Similar as well in the conversation of really understanding how much so in some of these conversations, what's the balance of sticking to their beliefs and conviction? There's a there's a difference between having, you know, we want our founders to have a vision to say, here is a problem. There's a problem. Here's why we think it's a problem. Here's the empirical data that we have. Here's some of the initial validation and that, you know, how we solve that problem could change. If someone folds very quickly on there's a problem or, you know, or, or, or the type of problem, that is, a, that is a little bit indicative of, you know, how much of an opportunity is there. You know, I want to see someone say, here's a, a gap that needs to be solved. And yes, we may pivot. We may find other gaps. We may find faster, faster roads. So that's the anecdotal piece. On the more scientific piece, when we're kind of with them, what we're really kind of pushing folks on, you know, our, our teams is to get away from the subjective and the anecdotal, right? And that's what I think we all do naturally. That's what startups do. It's very easy to be like, well, you know, I think my demographic is 27-year-olds and I had this conversation. This is where I think a success is. We try to remove that by making things very objective. Like, let's not talk about demographics. Let's not talk about customer type. Let's talk about the attributes and the trait that we think that is important to the company. Like I was saying, it does, does the length of sales cycle matter? Does our access to customers matter? Yes or no. You know, and kind of define these things across the variety of stakeholders, right? Not just the, the management team. It's great to get some customer input and, you know, again, making it data driven. If someone says, okay, this analyst said X. So my point is, okay, well, how do we know that that I always ask our, our founders, you know, does this opinion of thought, is this yours or an individual person's or is it representative of the masses? And if it's representative of the masses, how do we know? Because again, the biggest or one challenge a lot of founders make very early stage, kind of idea conception stage, is they're actually solving a problem, but they're solving a problem that they have. And then the first question is, is this problem you're solving, are you representative of you know, 20 people, or are you more representative of more of the masses, right? Is this a problem that many people share like you? And I do the same thing, you know, on the reverse. Okay, so this opinion, how do we know it's there? And what ultimately, I want to see the connection back in the trade. It's like, okay, this analyst said, I don't really like where you're going, because 
you know, you're, you're, you're going to have a 12 month sales cycle or, or these big corporations, you're going after fortune 100s and they're going to take forever to sell. And we know that. Why well, marry that back and say, okay, well, how important was the length of sales cycle? Oh, we said it was really important because we don't have a lot of funding and, you know, we don't have marquee clients. And so then I can marry that information together. But to your point is I think it's just as risky. Uh, when folks are are influenced by the last person said, and and really all you can try to do is build that sort of empirical, data driven, you know, objective culture in it that that people have to fight to to show why that 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 aspect is important. Awesome. Give me uh, one more tell. So when you guys are evaluating a a company or working with an existing company trying to assess fit, what's a another thing that you might see that could be a red flag that uh, would either be off-putting or would cause you to dig deeper? Yeah, it's very interesting. And, and you know, this might be unique for us. Uh, but as I mentioned, you know, most of the work we do is, is equity for services. And again, we kind of tie in. And one thing I should mention is, you know, we, we believe we're founder-friendly. It's important. We're the few folks that are in their camp. You know, investors and different stakeholders often have, you know, competing interests and in, in, in conflicts. And as such, we also put our equity at risk. So when we take equity, we say, hey, we're business owners too. It's really scary to give a piece of your company. If you don't know, you're going to get the value. You might think we're great. And so, you know, we're going to put it, it's going to invest over the lifetime of the, of the project. And if either side is not getting the value, you can cancel that. And we're not, we don't want to earn equity for not creating the value. You know, that's, that's not our model. And so the, the reason I say this is that a tell for us, is sort of that equity negotiations or, or the negotiations. We, we really kind of figure out what is sort of the right kind of ROI for us based on, on value. And, you know, interesting enough, you know, when you're talking to companies, there's conversations that aren't about, well, you know, it should be 3% or 7%. It's more about the value. Okay. Hey, if I can create value, if the, if the pie is bigger, I get it. And there's founders that get that, you know, they're, they're not really, they don't got this ego of, oh, I'm not going to give X percent or Y percent. They're thinking about, well, what are these activities? How do they tie the value? How does it get there? Then there's founders that you talk to that they could love you. It's like, you know, I, I, I want to be at this percent or that percent, or they don't get the sense that the, you know, okay, if, you know, they're not asking the questions, well, if I give equity, how do I know that I'm getting value back and how do I measure that and, and those kind of pieces? So for us, negotiation or even that conversation, because negotiation is happening when we know we want to work with them, but sometimes we're just having this kind of structural in the beginning. That's actually a big tell. We get to, you know, we're looking for folks that are, are want to drive value, right? And that's going to be a tell in everything they do. Are they going to look at partnerships and they're going to look at potential customers on, you know, I want to control as much as possible or how do I, you know, how do I generate the most value for, for, for the equity I have? So I think people's perspective on, on that piece is, is, is a tell for us. And then the one tell, or, or I guess it's not a tell, but one kind of lesson learned I've seen is one question I ask a lot of companies is, you know, who's your next hire? Okay. And it's a very interesting one. And I've been kind of telling this story for, for a couple of years. And, and generally what happens is I'd say 95% of the time, the answer is a technology, you know, a CTO, another developer, you know, something in, in, in the technology realm. And while that's extremely important, what I look to hear is oftentimes, you know, from my perspective, most companies I sit, that next hire, you know, early on, I would argue is a salesperson. 
Because you can have the best product, as you know, and the best thing, but if you don't have the capability to drive sales, it's not going to matter. And again, you don't need to have, you know, I tell people, it doesn't have to be a chief sales officer that's 50 years in. What you really want is something simple. Whatever industry you're in, someone who has experience selling into that industry. Because a lot of times we have technology companies that have people doing sales that, let's say, they're selling into restaurants. They've never worked in the restaurant industry. They don't understand how to call on restaurants and, and, you know, and how that, that piece works. So kind of a tell for me a little bit too is kind of their view on the organizational design or how they see building out their team. Cause by human nature, we tend to want to surround ourselves or, or pivot around our strength. So if we're a visionary. A big picture person, we kind of want to hire, even if we don't say a big picture people. But really, we need that execution person. If we're a technology person, that's what we're comfortable and we've developed the product. We feel really comfortable to continue to add technology folks, right? We don't know a lot about sales. It's scary. That seems, you know, the, the next step. We just want to keep iterating on, on the product. So really getting that balance is, is sometimes a tell to me. Awesome. I don't think you mentioned this during your intro for Solidia. And if you did, I apologize, I missed it. But I believe you guys have a bit of a Midwest focused with the companies that you work with. Is that correct? It is. And thanks for bringing that up. I was trying to kind of be brief on sort of the Solidia side of the pitch, but but I think uh, I probably neglected a couple key informations there. So yeah, first Solidia, we, we had a kind of a viewpoint now five or six years ago or more that innovation was starting to uh, change and evolve. And then a lot of innovation was moving away from, you know, the typical coast like, you know, New York, Silicon Alley and, and the West Coast, Silicon Valley. And that we really thought innovation and a lot of, you know, early stage companies were going to come out of the Midwest and the Southeast. And for a variety of reasons, you know, one, just a lot of great access to talent and, and education. Uh, the cost of, you know, as the cost of starting up a business goes down, it's much more cost, cost effective. Also, most people, the customer bases, you know, most customers and most companies are, you know, the majority of them are, are, are throughout the country in the Midwest and Southeast. And in addition, we thought there was going to be a lot of cities that were going to, you know, smaller cities that are going to try to reinvent themselves through entrepreneurism. So kind of those private public partnerships. So you think about, you know, a Detroit, Michigan, where they're trying to, you know, revitalize that area by drawing a lot of, a lot of startups in. So, you know, we, we've been involved in, you know, we have a lot of focus in Indianapolis and in Michigan and Detroit, uh, Charlotte from FinTech. You know, it's on the West Coast, um, but I would say uh, Los Angeles, which wasn't always seen as sort of a big uh, startup hub. You know, that was San Francisco, but they're starting to get some momentum too. So, And we like that because we think in these areas, you know, in the Midwest and South uh, Southeast, you know, these founding teams have to be more bootstrapping. They have to be more economic efficient. As, as Mike has been living and a lot of folks probably on a podcast, you know, there's less sophisticated angel networks and it's, it's harder to raise big rounds and you have to go further along with less capital. But in many ways, it creates the right behaviors and the right, and the right economic efficiencies to, uh, to create that. So yeah, we, we, we think that's going to be the drivers and that's what we're seeing. Just a lot of great companies coming out of, out of those areas. Awesome. I wanted you to hit that. I think that's uh, an important part of uh, at, at least the relationship I know we've been able to build with you. So I just wanted to end on, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I've collaborated with you guys now on uh, something like four companies. If you'll let me, I'd love to do it on a fifth someday. You guys are amazing. 
I can't speak highly enough about uh, the work that you and your team do, and I do it often. Uh, if anybody would like to get in touch with you, how should they best do that? Uh, great. You know, I definitely appreciate it. And I do want to put that, you know, especially for folks listening, we, we've just got the most admiration and respect for Mike, for Developer Town, for the collaborations we've had with portfolio companies. Really one of our favorite folks and organizations uh, to work with and has been a great uh, source of introduction to companies. And that's something I should have mentioned as well is, you know, because we are a cost center, because, you know, we put, you know, our staff is extremely expensive and, you know, we we put all the risk in the equity, we have to be you know, highly selective. So most of our portfolio companies really do come from, we really don't look at folks that aren't coming from a trusted source, whether a VC partner that we work with, you know, a lot of our companies come from some of the relationships we have with big VCs that say, oh, we really like this company, but they're a little too early for us. We think they would really benefit from your help. It becomes a win-win. We know that they've got some tie-ins to you know, those capital sources. We know they're on, you know, they're there and they also hear from, you know, folks that they respect that, that we can make some other changes. So I, I would say anyone feel free to, to reach out uh, to me. You can either reach out uh, directly through Mike and he'll make a connection. Uh, Mike, if you want to pass along contact information, uh, you can always send me an email. I'll give you my Gmail because it, it's shorter. ebaum, E-B-A-U-M 2611 at gmail.com or go to the Celia website and reach out, but we're always happy to, to talk to folks and make ourselves uh, available. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know we ran way over, uh, but I really appreciate it. Uh, no problem. Really enjoyed it. Great as always speaking with you and an apologies in advance for, you know, I, I, I tend to have long answers, but as you can see, it's just an exciting space. So always happy to chat about it. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, thanks, Mike. If you're thinking of launching a SaaS product, startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors, survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com.